Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes, and tonight is Friday, September 2nd, and we're going to go over the book of Nahum. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, we do very much love you and are grateful that you are our creator and our savior, and you have all the wisdom and the knowledge and the power. You are long-suffering towards us. You are patient and kind. And God, we just want to ask that you would please be here with us this evening. We certainly want to ask, Lord, if uh, there's anything in our life that's keeping us from being close to you, you would point it out to us. You would forgive us of any shortcomings or sins and help us to do your will in this next day. Uh, help us to do a better job for you. And Lord, we want to thank you just for, you know, a group of people that want to get together and study the Bible on a Friday night want to thank you for this house we can use, and uh, we want to thank you that we still live in a country where, you know, people love God, and uh, we can freely uh, worship you, you know, collectively. So, uh, God, as we start tonight, we just want to ask you would guide and direct. Uh, Lord, please be with those who are sick and unable to attend. Please be with those who um, are mad at me and hate my guts and never want to come here again. Um, please bless them and uh, help them, Lord, to do your will instead of their own. God, we want to pray for folks that are out of town. And uh, Lord, please get us in contact with people in our lives that would enjoy coming here and that we could be a blessing too. And when we come in contact with them, please tap us on the shoulder and remind us to invite them to a Bible study. And uh, God, give us a good, fun night tonight. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, Nahum, can anyone tell me is any, yeah, does anyone want to tell me some facts about Nahum? He is. Very good. He is an Elkishite. Very good. Wayne made it at least through the first verse of the book. Okay, how about this? How about this? Let, let's, let's go over this. There. Oh, okay. Good. Hey, I'm glad that some of you use the Cliff Note version of the Bible to, you know, find the five-minute recap on YouTube of the book so you have an idea of what we're talking about here. That's wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're animated. They use big fat crayons and small words for you. <laughs> uh -huh. If you want a quick synopsis, yeah, there's there's plenty of information on the Internet to help you get a quick snapshot. It's good. OK, how about this? The prophets are broken down into two types of prophets. Typically, when you hear about prophets, anyone want to tell me the two types of prophets? Good. And minor. Okay, major and minor. Does anyone know the, first of all, does anyone want to guess which one Nahum is? He is. He is a minor prophet. Does anyone know how they came up with that designation of major or minor prophet? It is. It's, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's how much they wrote. So oftentimes we get this idea that a major prophet is more important and a minor prophet is less important, but that's, that's not the case. It is simply a way to catalog the books. So you have major and minor. There's a second way to uh, separate the books of prophecy. Anyone else want to take a guess as to how we can do that? No, but, but it does have to do with a time period. So how about this? When we're going through a timeline and we're going to say we have over here is the New Testament. Prior to that, we have a little period of 400 years of nothing being written down. And then prior to that, we go through this period of time called the Prophets. Now, what, <clears throat> what was before the prophets? 
you have Moses, you have the book of Judges, you have the Kings, right? We're familiar with all that. Now, there were prophets during the times of the Kings. That's nothing new. But there is a big event somewhere in between the 400 years of silence. And once the prophets start, what is that big event? As far as the Bible timeline, I'm going to say it's in the top five big events of the entire Bible timeline. Moses? No, not the flood. What? It is the exile. Or, um, um, I, no, I don't want to call it the exile, but tell me what you mean. Very good. So we'll call it the captivity. That good? Instead of the exile. Okay, so we have the captivity, uh, and that is, we want to call it the Babylonian captivity. There are many, many captivities during the Bible. There's lots of them. There's some in the book of Judges that no one ever notices or recognizes. Uh, there, there's the one in uh, Egypt. Obviously, that one's pretty famous. And we have the Babylonian captivity. So the prophets are divided into pre-exile uh, uh, pre prophets or pre-captivity pre prophets and post-captivity prophets. So you have the Babylonian uh, captivity and you have prophets on each side of that. So uh, that is important. Now, where does Nahum fall? No, he is not. Now, there are a couple prophets that fall right in the middle of the captivity. Can anyone name some of them? What's that? Uh, I would give you Ezra. Yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah. I would give you those because they're really right at the end. Like literally Nehemiah starts the end of the captivity, but he was captive. Okay, so Ezra and, ne and Nehemiah, those are good. Daniel, there's one. Okay, who is a contemporary of Daniel? So Daniel went away to Babylon, and the whole book of Daniel is him in Babylon. Then we have Ezekiel. Ezekiel was taken away to Babylon, but he wasn't taken away. Daniel was taken away first. Is it clear to everyone that there were three Babylonian sieges? So they're all one siege, but there were three. They're, they're considered one siege but there are three separate events. So what happened is uh, Babylon came in and they laid siege and Israel got defeated and they took away people to Babylon, but then the Babylonians put in a vassal king. So they put in an Israelite as king that was supposed to answer to the Babylonians. Daniel was taken away in the first captivity. Then after that, there is the second captivity. Ezekiel is taken away in that captivity, and they put in another vassal king. The vassal kings do not obey the Babylonians or do what they're told. They rebel, and that's why Babylon comes back. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar has a belly full of the whole thing, and the third siege, they grind them to powder. I mean, it is bad. And during that time, who is in Jerusalem leading up to the third siege? And during the third siege, I think it's the longest prophet in the Bible, if that helps. No? Did you say Paul? You mean the guy that we just read the whole book of Acts about? That guy? Okay, no. Paul's in the New Testament. The Babylonian captivity took place 500 years prior to that. Nope, Samuel took place way, way early. Yep, longest prophet. No, in the book, in the prophets. I already said, what's that? It is Jeremiah. Okay, Jeremiah is the longest, then comes Isaiah. All right, that's okay. That's why we're going over the timeline to try to give a little bit of context as far as where we are and what's going on. I find it helps me. I don't like reading any history without a timeline and learning about what else is going on at the time. So did anyone hear my podcast last Sunday? So I interviewed a fella who is running for Mesa County clerk and recorder on the libertarian ticket. Okay. And we had a, a fun conversation and we went over um, how much Christianity should be in government. And one thing that was pointed out <clears throat> at the time that a lot of people I don't think understand is that the way the founders set it up 
is to never allow a church to run the government and to never allow the government to be in charge of or run a church. Now, for us, we're like, oh, well, what's the big deal? What can be the harm? Well, when was our government founded? A long time ago? That's exactly the answer that I want. That's very helpful for everyone who's here. And, you know, in any history class, your teacher is going to love that. Quite a while ago. When did the country start? 1776. Thank you. Okay, good. So, and here we are at 2022, and the idea that they made this rule doesn't seem to make sense to us. But if we go back in time to 1620, 150 years prior to when those guys were around and, and formed this country with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, what we don't recognize was going on that they had in their minds, fresh in their minds. When we go back 150 years from our history, we think about we had Vietnam, we had Korea, we had World War II, we had World War I. We can even go back and say Civil War was right around the corner, and all that makes sense to us, right? Now, how many of you have ever read about the, you know, the Spanish and Indian War, you know, yeah, I mean, I've heard of them, but, you know, there, there are all these other wars that we were involved in and these things that were going on. But once you get past 150 years ago in America's history, you know, it, 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 it's a little bit too far removed. You got to remember, in 150 years, you're only a generation away. You had really old people that are alive that were able to tell you stories of what happened with their parents and, you know, they were there. So during 1776, what happened within 150 years? Well, guess what? Galileo was on trial for his life because he dared to say that the earth, okay, is not the center of the universe. And that went against church doctrine. And he was charged for heresy. Okay, do you know that King Henry VIII was putting people to death because they didn't believe what he believed? And then he had a daughter and she was putting people to death because people didn't believe what she believed. And then she had a sister and she was put and they were all putting different people to death. But it was because the government was in control of churches and the founding fathers saw that this is a mess and it can't happen. You and I, when we hear about that, it's like well, we've never experienced it and no one in our life has experienced it. And no one in their life has experienced it. When we talk to the oldest people in our lives, they don't have that never happened. But when you go back and you see what's going on in that time period, it helps give you perspective and it helps you look into how they were thinking and what was going on. So that's why we talk about things like this. When we get into a book of the Bible, we want to talk about the dates, and we want to talk about what was going on at the time. And all of a sudden, the book makes a lot more sense because it's like, oh, okay, that's what was going on in the nation of Israel or surrounding it. So that's what we're going to be getting into. What's up, buddy? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, sorry. You were too far away. Sorry. Good to see you. How are you? Good to see you. Come on in. Anyone? No one else, right? Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. <clears throat> okay. So all that is introduction to the book of Nahum. Now we have a whole lot more introduction. We're starting a new book, fellas. The book of Nahum. It is after Jonah and before Malachi. With that, you'll, you'll just have to search for it. Okay. So let's see. Let's start with John chapter 7, verse 52. Turn there. In John chapter 7, verse 52, Moses and Joseph, you guys got to get down off the counter so everyone can see. Yeah, I don't want you guys in the way. Yeah, just bring your stuff out here. <clears throat> okay, John chapter 7, verse 52. They, it's going to make sense while we're talking about this verse in a minute. They answered and said unto him, Are, They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. 
Does anyone know where we are and what's going on here? Jesus just talked about how he was the living water. And then the Pharisees were talking to the folks that were there, and they were upset that they didn't grab Jesus and bring him back so they could stone him. And they're like, well, we never heard anyone teach like this guy. This guy was amazing. And Nicodemus stands up for Jesus, and then someone asks him, are you also from Galilee? Look and see here, buddy. No one out of Galilee arose as a prophet. So that's what the Pharisee said. Now, <clears throat> what's the problem with what the Pharisee said in John chapter 7, verse 52? They said, no prophet ever arose out of Galilee. I'm just going to sit here silently till someone guesses wildly. What's that? <clears throat> okay, the, the problem with what they said is that two prophets did come from Galilee. Nahum is one. Anyone want to guess the other one? There's only about 20 of them in the Bible, so just start guessing wildly. MacArthur? No. Who? It was not. Old Testament prophet. He has a book. It was not. Okay, how about this? I'll give you a hint. Does anyone know the main topic of the book of Nahum? I expect you to know this, Nick. You watched a YouTube video in preparation. It is the nation of Assyria. What was their capital city? What's that? It was Nineveh. Very good. Okay. Jonah. It was Jonah and Nahum both came from Galilee, both prophets from Galilee. So we, we read about that in, uh, let's see, da, 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 2 Kings 14, verse 25 uh, is where uh, it indicates that Jonah is from Galilee. And then Nahum was from Capernaum. Does anyone know what Capernaum means? So it's Capernaum. It literally means the village of Nahum. Yeah, isn't that neat? Okay, so both of these prophets were sent to prophesy against Nineveh. So Jonah preached against Nineveh, and they repented. Now, remember, Jonah did not preach the message, you guys better get right or else. That's not what he went to Nineveh saying. He went there saying, you've got 40 days and you're done. That was it. He never said anything about you better get right. Nope. He said 40 days and the judgment of God is falling. Now, the king on down repented and God spared them for a century. And when you read through the book of Jonah, and we might get to it, because what is Jonah? I think it's four chapters. It's another short one. And, you know, it's everyone's heard about the book of Jonah, right? They made a VeggieTale movies on it, so obviously it's worth studying. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Jonah went, and to his dismay, God spared the Ninevites. Why was Jonah upset about that? He did not think they deserved to be spared. Let me ask you, Wayne, do you think they deserve to be spared? Let me ask you this, Wayne. Do you think you and I deserve to be spared? I, don't, I agree. I think the answer is no. If we deserved it, then it would not be what? It would not be grace. If we deserved it, it would not be grace. Okay, so he didn't think the Ninevites deserved it, but he had good reason. They were horrible people. I mean, some of the worst people in history. And we'll get into how bad they were in a little bit. So 60 years have gone by since the repentance of the Ninevites, and now Nahum is going to tell uh, the Ninevites that 
here's a new message from God. Uh, you done messed up. You repented from your repentance, meaning they turned back and they just started doing what they were doing before. And now it's over. Destruction is coming. So Assyria, which is a world empire, and let's go to the map. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yep. Uh, faith and grace was the way everyone was saved from the very beginning. Yes, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I need the chalkboard back up. So let me let me get back around to that. But good question. All right. So here, uh, this is a, a, a map we put center stage for this this evening. So the outline in purple is the Assyrian Empire at its zenith. And as you can see, it had all of Iraq, all of Syria, all of Jordan, the northern portion of Saudi Arabia, parts of uh, Egypt. And obviously, it had Israel, Lebanon, pieces of Turkey, and modern-day Iran. Now, there's three red X's here in Iraq. Can anyone tell me what any of those are? Very good. Even though the print is this small and you can't see it, you should know based on uh, what is important in Iraq. So the lowest one is Babylon. What's 90 miles north of Babylon? Come on, I expected you to know this. He's the only one in the room that's been there. <laughs> Sorry. It's the capital city of Iraq, which is Baghdad. Thank you. And then you follow the Tigris River all the way up, and all the way up here, you get to Nineveh. So that's where Nineveh is. And you can Nineveh is still listed on modern maps. It's not, it, it's not in question. They dug it up. Okay, we know we know right where it is. Alexander the Great was there, but it was under his feet. He didn't know where it was. Uh, but but anyway, this is the Assyrian Empire. Understand the Assyrian Empire and the Syrian Empire are different, so don't mix up Assyria and Syria. It's an easy thing to do. But this is this is what we're talking about. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of uh, Assyria, <clears throat> and what you have to understand is that every country comes to a point of no return. And the book of Nahum is the story, or not the story, but God's declaration of judgment upon a nation when it has gone too far and it is over and they are going to be destroyed. It is a dark, dark book. It happened 60 years after Jonah. They did. They went back to their old ways. So they uh, repented. 60 years went by. In that time, they went back to their old ways. Nahum shows up and tells them that it's over. And then 40 years later, they are destroyed. So the subject of the prophecy is the complete and final destruction of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And this message is about God's justice. Now, this is not a very popular message nowadays. Um, we love to hear about the love of God. We don't much like to hear about the judgment and justice and righteousness of God. But here's the problem. What people don't understand is that God being righteous and just is a demonstration of his love. He could not be a loving God. if. He, let me ask you this. If you had a local judge that let every criminal go, would you consider that judge to be loving of anybody? No, because you have to remember a righteous judge. What is included with a righteous judge? There's a victim. There is a victim. And it is not righteous, it is not loving if we say that we will not even attempt justice for any of the victims. That is not a loving judge. 
God's judgment and his righteousness is a demonstration of his love. Now, we don't like that when we're on the sharp end of the stick. But again, why does God... Now, understand, that there is, a, there is a difference. Even the Christian who loves and follows God, we're not dealing with righteous judgment anymore because we have grace. Righteous judgment is gone, and thank God for it. But we still get what the Bible calls chastisement. Now, why are we chastised? Wash? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, corrected. We are corrected. Yes. You got it. God wants to get us to where he wants us to be. You got to remember, God's a loving father. And as a loving father, guess what? You don't let your kid skip out on school and eat a bag of sugar for breakfast. Why? Because you care about your kid's teeth and you care about their education. So you want them to learn and read books and you want them to not eat a bag of sugar for breakfast, right? So it doesn't matter what the kid wants. You as the parent know better and your goal is to train the kid to get them to where it's gonna be good for them. So God does the same thing. And when we read about the shepherd and the sheep, what do we read? The shepherd has two tools. What are they, Moses? So here's the deal. If we don't have any clue whatsoever, let's just go ahead and not raise our hand so, so we can move it along. Karen, you said one. You got the staff. Nick, what was the other one? The rod. You got it. Okay. And, and these are both tools, and they are both necessary for the shepherd to get his job done. And what is one of those for? What's that rod for? What is he, what is he use it on? Now, he uses it on the sheep. He beats the sheep, gets the sheep in line because he knows that it's not okay that the sheep wander off by themselves. Guess what? What type of self-defense mechanisms do sheep have? You ever see a sheep in a fight? Does anyone illegally have sheep fighting that they bet on? No. You do that with dogs and you do that with chickens and you do that with animals that are aggressive. You don't do it with sheep. Okay, there's no sheep fighting. So God, the shepherd knows that if the sheep wanders off on its own and continues to do that, it is going to get killed by a wolf. So what does the shepherd do? He tries to correct it by getting it, getting it in line. And in the most extreme circumstances, what does that shepherd do? Wash? No, that's not going to help him get in line. There's a specific action we're missing here. It'll use the rod and break the sheep's leg. Yep. And then what's... That's right. The shepherd has to carry it from then on until it heals. And he carries it on its back. And the sheep starts to trust the shepherd and understand that he's there to help them. You think the sheep likes that process? No. No, it doesn't. No, it's a burden for the shepherd. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but think of this. As parents, that's our job. And it doesn't matter if it's a great burden for us as parents. We're willing to do it. Why? Because we love the sheep. That's the idea. All right, so let's try to keep going because clearly we're not even going to start the book of Nahum tonight. All right, so the history of Nineveh. Uh, the first mention is in Genesis chapter 10. Who's the, who's the first guy involved with Nineveh in the Bible? Nope. Genesis chapter 10. Now no one wants to raise their hand because I gave that caveat of... <laughs> Let's at least get it down to the right century when we're guessing names. So I'm waiting for someone. Jesus? No. It was um, it was after Noah. 
Okay, no, 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 no. Th- you're 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 listing a bunch of good guys. It was Nimrod. Nimrod, the first bad guy. Or how about the first really bad guy? There were other bad guys before him. So Nimrod is the one that that uh, is the founder of Nineveh and ends up being his capital. So the first world dictator was an Assyrian whose capital was Nineveh. And he becomes idiomatic of the final world dictator. What do we call the final world dictator? The Antichrist. You ready for this? Uh huh. Yes, uh, relating to, uh, but the meaning is not derived by the specific wording. So, for example, I say, uh, zip your lip. Well, if we use the literal words, it doesn't help us understand, but it does have a meaning related to something, which would be to, you know, be quiet. So idiomatic is relating to something, even though it's not specified in the definition. So does that help? Okay. So what's the nationality of the Antichrist? Did you know that the Bible says? Hmm? No, no, no. The nationality. Nationality? Come on, public school. What do you mean? What does nationality mean? (laughs) Are you French? Are you Spanish? Are you Australian? Where are you from? Oh, nationality, like the nation that I'm from. Yes, nationality. Here's a help. He's not American. He is not Russian, but that's a good guess, and it's biblically relevant. He is not Japanese, not Chinese. Okay, He is also Assyrian. And if you want to do your own study, go to Micah chapter 5, go to Isaiah chapter 10, and it explains this, and we can do a little study on it if you want me to go over it later. Okay, so let's keep going. So Nineveh, next uh, we read about, and it shows up in, uh, with Hammurabi. Uh, Hammurabi was the king of Babylon, and he has one of the oldest and most clear and be- most well-preserved historical texts on earth, and he refer- references Nineveh all the way back in uh, 1800 BC. Uh, Shalmaneser third made the city of Nineveh a base for military operations. And during his reign, uh, Israel came into contact with Nineveh. And uh, he wrote that he fought a coalition of kings of Aram and others, including Ahab the Israelite. So you find that uh, written down in history. Um, It's just neat whenever you see, you know, uh, secular history, um, you know, coincide with the Bible. Uh, then after that, uh, let's see. Oh, and this is going to be, this is part of it. So Shalmaneser, uh, later on writes about how he received tribute from Jehu, the son of Omri. Now that is explained on the black obelisk of Shalmaneser. Did everyone get the pictures I sent you through email? So the black obelisk of Shalmaneser is, so an obelisk is like the George Washington monument, four-sided, big pillar, okay? But this one has pictures and writing on it, and it explains how Israel at the time of the Assyrians were under tribute to the nation of Assyria. So remember, like we showed, when the nation of Assyria was at its height, Israel was part of it and they taxed Israel, and the Bible uh, mentions that indirectly. Okay, after that, uh, Asher Dan III uh, was the ruler of Nineveh at the time that Jonah was there. So that was the king, okay, who reigned in Nineveh at the time of Jonah the prophet. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser III uh, was uh, was there at the time of Azariah, king of Judah, 
and uh, he paid tribute to Tiglath Pileser III in around 750 BC. Then you get to Shalmaneser, and Shalmaneser, this guy, uh, we're going to talk about a little bit. He is historically, oh, wait. Actually, that's not even true. I wanted the next guy, Sennacherib. Anyway, Shalmaneser besieged Samaria and defeated it. So when the northern king of Israel was taken captive, it was Shalmaneser who took them captive. So remember, in our timeline here, we're up to the point where King David dies, King Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam starts the southern kingdom, and then Jeroboam comes in from Egypt and starts the northern kingdom, and Israel has a, I don't want to call it a civil war, although they didn't get in along, they were split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And then you have all the wicked kings in the north, and you have all the wicked kings in the south. And Assyria took the northern kingdom captive. And they and when they did that, when Assyria did that, Shalmaneser was the king that did that. Now, the southern cap, uh, the southern kingdom was spared by God. It was not taken over uh, by a kingdom that wiped them out or destroyed them or dispersed them. And why did God spare the southern kingdom? There's only one reason why God spared the southern kingdom. Nope, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem was leveled. It, it was ground to powder. Yeah. Anyone want to guess? Uh, it was a king, but it wasn't one of the ones that turned to God. Who was God's favorite king? Hey, good job, Mike. Good thing. It was David. It was because of King David that God spared the southern kingdom. It was not because they were good. It was not because they were obedient. It was not because they did, you know, anything that God said, even though there was a couple of good kings in there. God spared the southern king because of David. So then after Shalmaneser comes the king Sennacherib. So 21 years later, Sennacherib invaded Judah and destroyed 46 Judean towns and cities. And then he laid siege to and encircled Jerusalem. Now, turn with me to 2 Kings 19. This is a good one. 2 Kings chapter 19, let's go to verse 32. And let's see how this worked out. Now remember, and, and we're getting off in the weeds, but hey, that's what we do here, right? We, okay, so, you know, we're, we're just, that's where we are. How long was the southern kingdom of Judah captive in Babylon? Raise your hand, please, so we can have someone give a shot. Get, hold on, Wayne. Carlos, give me a guess. Nope. By guess, I didn't mean just random out of the air. I was hoping for, you know, something a little closer. Joe. 70 years, and not close to 70 years, 70 years to the day. Now, for two gold stars, why was it 70 years? Moses, I'm going to start with the kids. Yes, seven decades, 490 years. So the nation of Israel did not let the land rest. So we're not going to turn to it, but you can look back on your own. God told Moses to tell the Israelites, look, when you get in the land, it's my land. And my land will get a rest. And it will get a rest one year in seven. Mac, you pay attention or you move out here. One year in seven, you will not plant, you will not sow, you will not weed, you will not harvest. And God said, I will give you enough in the sixth year to last you three years. Okay, but one in every seven years, you will let the land rest. So Joshua moves everyone in across the Jordan. They start to take over the land. And guess how many times they let the land rest? Zero. They never did it one time. So God ends up saying, here's the deal. My land is getting its rest. And after 490 years, you owe me 70. And I'm taking them all at once. And they were marched off to Babylon. 
and Jerusalem was destroyed and the wall was destroyed and the city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and it was ground to dust. And God said, my land's going to rest. You'll be back in 70 years. And they were back in 70 years to the day. Now, before 490 years came up, there was another king, Sennacherib, that got it in his own mind. I'm going to go to Israel, and I'm going to surround Jerusalem, and I'm going to take him captive. You want to see how well that worked out when he tried to mess with God's timeline? Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there. You got that? A massive army from the largest kingdom. So understand that prior to Babylon ruling the world, Assyria did. They were the big dog in the world. Babylon came up out of Assyria. Babylon was a city in Assyria that grew to a point where it became its own kingdom and overtook and destroyed Assyria. Assyria ruled the world. And God said, they will not fire an arrow at my city. <clears throat> nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it by the way that he came by the same shall he return and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that an angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. How many did that one angel kill in one night? Nope. Hundred and eighty-five thousand. Okay, a hundred, four score, and five thousand. A score is twenty. One angel in one night killed a hundred and eighty-five thousand Assyrian soldiers. So, how? Okay, so the question was: Is there any validity to the angel of the Lord uh, being Jesus? So, how about this? There are other times when it talks about that when it is Jesus. So when Joshua is on his own outside the camp and he runs into an angel and he says, are you with us or against us? That ended up being Jesus. And we know that because of the things the angel said. But with that being, with that being said, what you find is oftentimes the term angel is a broad stroke definition of any celestial being. So Jesus, actual angels, cherubs, seraphim, all these different celestial creatures get painted with the broad stroke of angel in the Bible. I have no reason to think that was Jesus, but if someone wanted to make an argument, I'd love to hear it, you know. How about this? I've never run across any good reason to say it's Jesus. And I'll tell you why in a second, because we're going to get to some pretty neat verses here, you know, in a minute, or maybe we'll squeeze it in tonight. Now, understand, the king woke up and his army was dead. 185,000 soldiers gone. Now understand, and this is kind of funny because what does it say? It says, uh, and when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead. Doesn't really read right. right? When they rose all in the morning, they were all dead. Understand there were more than 185,000 people there. It was 185,000 soldiers. So you also had, when you would travel with 185,000 you know, soldiers, anyone that was in the military knows that it's not just 185,000 soldiers and that's it. You have people that cook the food, you have dentists and doctors, you have, you know, you have all, you have blacksmiths and all kinds of everyone that had a trade that was support was also there. The soldiers were dead. Now, why did God only kill the soldiers and no one else? Wash? 
Sure, the soldiers were the threat to Jerusalem, but why didn't he kill everyone else? There are times when God goes into a country that he doesn't like and he kills everyone, including the sheep. <laughs> now, keep my, my answer is a guess. I don't know if it's right. It's a guess. Moses? Carlos? No, no, no. Clearly, they would want to kill the soldiers because they were the threat. My point is, why did they let anyone go? Okay, do you know what the Turks... To tell the story. Do you know what the Turks were famous for? Throughout history, they would sneak into their enemy's camp, and at night, in silence, they would kill every other man. In silence, they would go up to every man sleeping and they would slit the throat of every other soldier. What did that do to the men that woke up? Yeah. Scared to the point of absolute panic. Game over. You got it. And they were up and gone. And guess what? They told everyone the story, and nobody came back to mess with them. And I think that's why so many survived is so that they could wake up and they could say, we went to sleep and everything was fine and every soldier died in one night. Just remember, you don't mess with angels. 185,000 soldiers in one night. There's no competition there for, you know, for us. All right, let's keep going. So let's move it along here. Um, on the timeline, the rise of Nineveh was about 900 B.C., 759 BC was the warning of Jonah. You can jot these dates down if you want. I'm not going to write them on the board. The what's that? Oh, sorry. I thought st someone said something. Uh, 722 was the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. 709 was when Sennacherib uh, invades the southern kingdom, and it doesn't go too well for him. Uh, then 663 was the prophecy of Nahum, which was roughly 100 years after Jonah. Then uh, 625 is the destruction of Assyria. Okay, so now Nineveh, as far as a city, the city of Nineveh was uh, located on the east side of the Tigris River, about 550 miles northeast of Samaria. Now, that distance is important because that was the distance required uh, for Jonah to travel, which would have taken more than a month if he was traveling 15 to 20 miles a day. The great city was second in size only to Babylon. Like Babylon, it was protected by an outer wall as well as an inner wall. Uh, those were 50 feet apart and they were over 100 feet tall. Now, does anyone have any concept of what a hundred foot tall wall looks like? Cause I've never seen one. I mean, I've been in big cities where I've seen big buildings, but if you go out to the front of our house, the peak of the roof, I think is 35 feet. So three times that is the top of the wall. My point is when you're looking up there, I think you can barely notice if someone is looking over at you, they're small. It was, it was considered or believed to be impenetrable. It had 1,200 towers that were 200 feet high. So they saw you coming from, I mean, forever away. Uh, they had the river that they used uh, for agriculture, which was contained inside the city. So they grew crops. They had animals. They were self-sufficient. They laughed at anyone that wanted to try to come and destroy them. It was considered impossible. Let's see. Finally, we read about how the Assyrian king himself acknowledged that his people, their ways were one evil and they were characterized by violence. And we read about that in Jonah chapter three, verse eight. The city was also known for its idolatry. It had temples dedicated to the gods Nebu, Asher, Adad, and Dagon. Does anyone know what Dagon was the god of? This all has to do with the last time you read the book of Jonah. The city was known for what God? 
I know there's too many of them out there. It was the fish god. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, right. Close enough. Okay. So uh, the book of Nahum was written in Jerusalem where Nahum witnessed the invasion of Sennacherib and the destruction of all of his armies. It is believed to have been written uh, sometime between 612 to 663. Uh, and the subject of the prophecy is the approaching, approaching complete and final destruction of Nineveh. So now let's start reading Nahum chapter one. Let's get through a couple verses and we'll see how far we get. So Nahum chapter one, let's read verses one through six, and then we'll go from there. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. All right, so verse 1, Nahum was an Elkishite. What does an Elkishite mean? Anyone? I'm not looking for what the word means. Just when it says he was an Elkishite, what does that mean? What does it mean when, what? What's that? Yeah, it does. It means he was from Elkosh, just like a Nazarite is someone from Nazareth. Okay. Now, if you guys were paying attention in the beginning, where did I say he was from? Nope. Nahum. Where was Nahum from? No, you're all going to feel silly in a minute. He was from, go ahead. No. Capernaum, the city of Capernaum. What does Capernaum mean? Capernaum. Capernaum. It is the village of Nahum. That's literally what Capernaum means. The belief is that it was later renamed in honor of Nahum. So understand, Capernaum wouldn't have been named Capernaum until after a guy named Nahum was born and raised and did something great, right? I'm still waiting for them to rename West Milford, New Jersey to, yeah, Patrick Hayes. Yeah. So, yeah. So the belief is that after Nahum became a prophet, that they renamed Elkosh uh, to Capernaum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum. Whether that's true, we can argue it all day long. I really don't care. All right. So why would the destruction of Nineveh be a comfort to Judah? What's that? That's exactly right. Nineveh oppressed Judah. So when we showed you the city and we read earlier about how Israel was within the borders of Assyria, Assyria forced the nation of Judah to pay them tribute. So the idea that Israel had to live within the borders of Assyria and had to pay them tribute, they didn't like, and it was wonderful to be freed of the burden of having the Ninevites and the Assyrians, okay, be around anymore. So... Now, how do we know that the book of Nahum was written to Judah? The answer is obvious, but you don't find it. You don't find it written here. It's a timeline question.
taken captive by Babylon. Book of Nahum written. What happened before the book of Nahum was written? Northern kingdom was gone. Assyria took the northern kingdom away prior to Nahum writing the prophecy. So we know that the book was written to okay, the nation of the southern kingdom, Judah, as a comfort, along with being read in Nineveh as a condemnation of what was going to happen. All right, so in verse 2, it says... The Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. Now, let me ask you guys this. You ever get one of those uh, little, like, calendars that you can find at a Christian bookstore where each day has a promise of God, you know, or it talks about all the wonderful promises about, you know, how God's going to do this, and God's going to bless you this way, and everything's great, and we just love those, Right. I've never seen the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries on one of those calendars. <laughs> that, that promise just never seems to get on there. We only like the promises that sound good. <laughs> we don't like the idea, uh, you know, of these promises that God will be just. Hey, <clears throat> is anyone here a Elvis fan? Anyone here like Elvis? My hands up. Okay. Elvis. El okay, Carlos. Elvis was a singer, okay, here in America a while ago. Okay. He was a white guy that danced with a guitar. He was really popular. He had black hair, drove a big, big pink car. Any of this ringing a bell? Jumpsuits that he had to like stuff his belly into because he, at the end of his life, it was bad. I mean, it was, yeah. Okay. So look up the song run on by Elvis. Does anyone know, did anyone know that Elvis had a very successful career as a gospel singer prior to singing rock and roll? I have a compilation of like five CDs worth of Elvis songs of nothing but him singing gospel songs. And they are awesome. I mean, yeah. So, and I can down, I got them digitally. If anyone wants them on their phone, I can give them to you. There's one song called run on that you need to listen to. And it's him singing, just read the lyrics. It's him talking about how you can run on for a long time. But you, you can bet your bottom dollar God will cut you down. Okay, it is, an, it is a sobering song. Like, you can run on and sin as much as you want, but you can bet that God will cut you down. And that's the idea, is that there are consequences. There are consequences for the saved. There are consequences for the lost. Believe me, I would rather be saved on God's bad side, but I would much rather be saved on his good side. Okay, And there is a promise in the Bible that the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. Now, what happened prior to Nahum writing this book? God took God, uh, uh, The nation of Assyria took away the northern kingdom. Then what did Shalmaneser do? He tried to invade the southern kingdom. So, did you know that when Assyria took away the northern kingdom, the nation of Assyria was doing the will of God? God was using a pagan nation to exact justice on the northern kingdom of Israel. And God does that many times. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his instrument. God does the same thing with Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so God very often times will use our enemies okay, to exact justice. So, but... Uh, Sennacherib, or sorry, yeah, Shalmaneser tries and to, no, 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 sorry, Sennacherib tries to come into the southern kingdom, and what does God say? God says that he will take vengeance on his adversaries. Remember what we read in 2 Kings? Okay, they surrounded Jerusalem with almost 200,000 soldiers, and God said, not one arrow 
will fly at my city. Okay, and we believe that verse 2 is Nahum explaining to Nineveh, do you remember what happened? He's bringing it up again because they, they all remember that. It was only one generation ago. The guys that he's talking to, okay, their dads and granddads knew, were alive and knew the story about what happened when they surrounded Jerusalem. So this is Nahum reminding them of what is coming. Now in verses three and four, we read God is great in power. Now that's exciting for me, and it should be exciting for you. It all depends on what side we fall on. Because we have the side of people that love God, that God's in favor of. We have the side of people that hate God and fight against him. And let me tell you that God is great in power, works on both of those sides. And this chapter tells us about that. God talks about the people who love him and serve him. Don't worry about it. You're mine and I will protect you no matter what. And he says, for those of you that hate me, get ready Fire is coming. Okay, so <clears throat> let me ask you this. What word does the Bible use to describe slow in anger? In verse 3, it says the Lord is slow in anger. Does anyone know the New Testament Bible word that God uses to describe that? Yes, long-suffering. So God will suffer a long time. God will put up with our nonsense for a long time. God will put up with us messing up a long time. And we are grateful for that. But understand, part of the book is that even Nineveh, God even put up with Nineveh and Assyria for a long time. But in the end, okay, justice is going to be done. So <clears throat> let's see. We're down to, okay. Then God says that the wicked will not get an acquittal. Okay, and will not at all acquit the wicked. Then we get examples of God's power. God's power is found in the whirlwind and the storm. And, God, and Nahum is giving the people, the Ninevites, examples of like, look, these are natural occurrences where you can see God's power. Okay, so don't, if this is what God does in nature every day, don't think you know, that he doesn't have the ability to come for you. And then it talks about how the clouds are at the dust of his feet. So now remember, in that time, there were no helicopters, there were no airplanes, there were no astronauts. So he's talking about the clouds, that's the dust of God's feet. That thing up there that you've never touched, that you can't get to, that is out of reach, that is impossible to get to, that is literally the dust of God's feet. He's using examples in nature to show the bigness and the magnitude of this God that has it in for you that's going to destroy you. Okay, in verse 4, he talks about God rebukes the sea and dries it up and dries up all the rivers. When did God do that? Red Sea, Red sea right? In Exodus 14, 21, and 22, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And then... <coughs> We also have God drying up the sea. He does that when Joshua crosses the Jordan River to get into the promised land. God does this a couple of different times. And then we move down to verse 5. So in verse 5, it talks about several things that God did that demonstrate his power. So it talks about an earthquake. It talks about the hills melting. It talks about the earth being burned. Uh, where did these things happen? So where did where do we find an earthquake in the Bible? Crucifixion. Good job, Carlos. That's one. Where else do we find one? 
Um, yep, there's one after Mount Sinai. There's one in Samuel 14. There's one in Acts 16. They're all over the place. There's literally almost 30 examples that I found casually by searching the word earthquake in a concordance. So you find God using earthquakes and you find them being used supernaturally for God's, you know, will oftentimes. Okay, what about the earth being burned? What do you think of? Wayne? Okay, Mount Sinai was one. Anyone got another? What? Sodom and Gomorrah, that's another one. Okay, Revelation, second coming. Earth's going to be burned. So we see this happening before and after Nahum's uh, explanation. So these are more demonstrations of the power of God. All right, and then let's go to verse 6. Nahum asks a question. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger the answer is no one why was nahum asking the ninevites this question it was a rhetorical question why was but why was this important for the ninevites to hear they were mocking god through idolatry they thought they were untouchable. Why? 100-foot wall, 50 feet wide, 1,200 towers, largest army in the world. They mocked God and didn't care. They thought that they were untouchable. And he's asking rhetorical questions. Yep, they thought they were indestructible. Nobody could touch them. Nobody could get to them. Yep. And Nahum is reminding them, okay, who do you think you are? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Mayhem very clearly just explains that nobody can withstand God's anger and fury, and it's coming. So he says, here we go. Get ready. Okay, we are 10 minutes past. Let me see if we should stop or wrap it up with the next verse or two. We're going to stop there. Yeah, we'll finish up chapter one uh, next week, and maybe we'll get into chapter two. Okay, let's have a brief word of prayer, and then we had some questions, and we'll get to those. Okay. James, would you be so kind as to pray for us? Amen. Okay. We out? Okay. So we...